0: You go to a talk, you run into somebody, you have coffee with somebody and they bring somebody else and you meet them, right? You don't know what this randomness in the world, but when you make your own frame about what you value and you let it interact with the world, good things will happen no matter.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Becky.
2: And I'm Rohan, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom,
1: and hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are
2: today. Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning back into After Office Hours. We have a great conversation for y'all today. We spoke with none other than Dr. Ravi Bellamkonda, Dean of the Pratt School of Engineering.
1: Yeah, so he's uh, the dean of the Pratt School of Engineering and a, also a professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Before coming to Duke, he was formerly the chair of the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Tech. He currently has research interests in engineering devices to combat brain tumors. Yeah, I
2: find it really cool how he's able to balance his role as a scientist and as a brain cancer researcher in BME with his role as the dean of Pratt. As you'll find out he has a really cool vision for where he wants to see his research go in the future Um, but he's also able to find so much time to implement his vision for um, what he wants to improve and the changes he would like to see in duke's engineering school
1: absolutely it was really inspiring like you said to hear what his vision is for pratt and for duke and its engineering program and also just in general he's a very very interesting and thoughtful Uh, and philosophical person, I would say. Uh, Really, really great to talk to.
2: Yeah, so without further ado, uh, Dr. Bellam thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to come to speak with us. Uh, I'm really excited about our conversation. Um, Obviously, you're now the dean of the Pratt School of Engineering, but we wanted to take a step back first and get an idea of where you're from and what it was like for you growing up.
0: Well, I grew up in um, India. Uh, I was a little bit of a nomad. My dad worked for the federal government in India, and every three years he was moved to a different city. Uh, And so we went along. (laughs) So I went to, I think, something like seven schools for my first 12 grades all over India. And India is a very diverse country, so I guess so you could, looking back, think it was traumatic, but it is not actually. I learned how to make friends in new places. Uh, sure. The cuisine is different. Yeah. The language is different. So, I, it, But it did give me a certain perspective of being able to mingle and make friends. And, and, and uh, uh, my, my academic career would have been terrible had it not been for my mother, was very involved because she would help me take notes for the other students and catch up. And mm-hmm. uh, to this day, I'm very grateful to her for helping me out, uh, oh. survive all these school transitions. Um, so, uh, you know, I grew up in India. I never w- thought I would come here. Um, a bunch of my friends were applying when I was in college. Um, so I said, whatever. <laughs> you know? So I took the GRE and all that. And before I knew it, uh, Brown offered me a full fellowship to do my PhD. I didn't even think I was going to, I applied for a master's program and they said, well, your record is strong enough. We, we think you can do your PhD. And, wow. uh, and people said, uh, Brown is really excellent. It's Ivy League. I didn't even know what Ivy League was. If Brown <laughs> was in Texas, I would have gone to Texas. I didn't even know where Rhode Island was. So anyway, I landed here and uh, I am I, very fortunate is all I can say.
2: Wow, that's really cool to hear. I think some of that story sounds a little bit familiar to me as my parents are from South India, and they had a similar experience uh, immigrating to the US. But in terms of getting interested in engineering, um, how did you get involved with BME as an undergrad? And did you ever imagine getting to the position that you are in today as someone who is a leader in BME and is doing such cool research? How did that interest develop? um, And who are your role models in that?
0: <laughs> no, there are several question, layers to that question. One is, um, at the time when I was growing up, India had a closed economy. And to if you were bright in any sort of way, you were encouraged to think of three paths, only, and only three. One was to be a CPA, the other was to be an engineer, or you had to be a doctor. You know, You had to be one of these three things to make it. Uh, Now, fortunately, it's very different. There's a booming private sector. You you could do many other things. But at that time, you had to do one of these three things. And I've always been interested in medicine. Biology came easily to me. But I was decent at math. And in India, in ninth grade, you had to decide if you were on the math track, which is the engineering track, or the medicine track, like in ninth grade. And my (laughs) mother did biology, and she had these intricate... Botany drawing some kind of record notebook. I remember it was in our house. I was fascinated by leaves and the and the different, you know, venation of the I forget what the technical world is, but and, and I couldn't draw to save my life. I still can't draw. So I so she said, man, if you wanted to go into medicine, you'll have to know how to draw. And I said, I don't know how to draw. So I ended up on the math track. And fortunately, I was decent enough that I survived and got into engineering school. But I always wanted to do medicine. So when BME was an option, I was like, this is made for me. You know, I get to do math and I get to do medicine. And so I ended up in BME. And I never thought I'd do my PhD. I never thought I'd be a professor. Um, I guess I was intellectually curious. I was always curious about, you know, how, how do birds fly, you know? Uh, birds, people think and associate uh, birds with freedom because they can fly, but I can't help but think, maybe it's a dark thought, that gravity is always pulling them down, you know, (laughs) the the, the lower energy state is down below on the ground and they have to fight it every time they have to take flight, you know, so but I was curious about how do birds fly and why don't airplanes look like birds and these kinds of things, um, you know, and so anyway, so Uh, that's how I ended up in engineering by default, by some crazy reason. Turns out I didn't know, I didn't have to know how to draw to be, a (laughs) a but I didn't know that at that time. (laughs) So that's, that's how it is.
1: So I'd love to hear more about what your experience was like during your undergrad. Um, what kind of things you were involved in and, and what really pulled you more towards your passion for biomedical engineering?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, there are two or three things. One, BME in my undergrad program in India, you actually spent half a semester going to med school and did anatomy and physiology and biochemistry in the medical wow. school. Uh, you took classes with physicians. Uh, that was eye-opening, and I-, I loved that stuff. I remember yeah, really uh, going to med school for a semester. Hopkins does a version of that for its PhD program even now, actually. Um, that's that's one. And second... Um, I was involved in a lot of activities. Uh, I played a lot of sports in my life. I mean, I played uh, for my college um, cricket, which you don't, you guys don't know about, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like baseball, but not quite. Um, I also was an editor for a college magazine. So I, I like to write a little bit. So I did many different things that are not just technical. Um, I sure. wish I had done more technical things, done more research. Uh, But it was a joyous thing. To this day, some of my best friends are from college. A lot of them are here. Uh, We meet. Our families know each other. Our kids know each other. So I have very fond memories, but I can't say it was academically the most productive time. (laughs) I had a great great time, Uh, but uh, so you shouldn't take my advice (laughs) on this matter, but I... I did well enough, you know, I was second in my grade and all that, but uh, I still don't know how I managed that. But, um, you know, I did well enough, but I really, most of my memories are centered around things outside, which actually reminds me even now, my son is a Duke student. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we think in as professors, sometimes or administrators, that Duke is about the courses we teach or the degrees we offer. But I can see easily from talking to you guys that, maybe at a generous evaluation that's 20% of your experience <laughs> <Like> 80% <laughs> of your experience is the right. other stuff it's your friends 100%. and other things that you do on campus that make duke duke right um and that was similar for me also maybe 20% was academics 80% was not <laughs> but you know i got a great education that's for sure but yeah, no, I know
2: I think I really appreciate your candor in saying that, especially as Dean, you know, I think that's a very unique perspective to have and something that I think a lot of students would actually very much agree with. So
0: And I think I'm it came it was a stark realization, especially when we went online. We said Duke went online. But the thing is when you went online, you took this twenty percent and you made it the hundred percent and we lost the eighty <laughs> percent. So So that's what was stressful about about this last year. It is that it is very hard to go online with that 80%. And this 20% lends itself to going online and it's not, and it's a imitation of that actual 20%, right? It's not even a high fidelity 20%. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, So it's, it's tough. This is a tough year. We couldn't, I mean, we didn't have a choice. We did the best we could, all of us, including you, but that's, that's
2: that you know it's really good to hear your perspective on all this especially since i'm on the same page Um, but looking at your journey from india to the u.s i've heard a little bit from my parents about how much of a culture shock that can be you mentioned that you didn't even know where rhode island was i know there are so many differences you know not just the climate (laughs) you know how was moving um What did you expect? What did you not expect? Um, How was that experience?
0: Yeah, there were many things about it that were interesting. I'll tell you a few stories. One, I discovered that it wasn't an island. Um, (laughs) uh, Second, um, you know, there are many, you know, I I thought of myself as a reasonably well-informed person growing up in India. But when coming to the US is just opens your mind in so many different ways, you know, I met an African American, uh, not African, a black South African, who was at Brown as an undergraduate student and then became a graduate student in our lab. And his experiences—this is pre-apartheid; was still there. Um, I met students from Pakistan, and I was raised to think of Pakistan a certain way, including the map. The map of India was different when I came here from the map I was taught in my geography class. And and there are so many things like that that are eye opening to just take a perspective that is not, that is more global in, in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are these little things like um, ordering a sandwich was quite challenging actually for me, you know, because I would come in, I think it was Subway or something on campus and I would ask for a sandwich and I would read from the list and I'd say, I want that sandwich. And then I would have like a barrage of questions, right? And then I didn't know <laughs> the answers to. They were like, what kind of bread and do you want this and do you want this and do you want this? And and so I, I I didn't even know what some of those things were. And so I said, I want everything on it. And then I had a friend, <laughs> a friend in, in college, his name is Eric Fine. He was, he was a Dartmouth guy who was in the lab. And he would watch me pick out the pickles because I didn't like them. And he said, Ravi, you know, you can tell them you don't want the pickles, right? <laughs> so, 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 so stupid things, so things like this make you feel stupid, right? I mean, so, but... It's just a completely different experience. Uh, same with ice cream. When you order ice cream, you get all these questions about what you want and, and, and on it. And, but you know, you get. I'm just telling you a story, but it's just little yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. There right. were more serious things too, uh, like not having enough money. I didn't realize that when I came here, uh, at that time I could only bring $800 with me. And I didn't, I came here on August 26th, I remember in 1989 but I didn't realize that I wouldn't get paid on my fellowship till September 30th. And so I had $800. I had to find an apartment. I didn't realize that I had to put a deposit down for the apartment. So anyway, so it was was things like this that I didn't know, you know? And and so I fortunately I found a roommate who was from Connecticut and he paid the deposit and every month I would pay him back $50 to get to my $400 deposit because it was an $800 apartment. Uh Um, So And then to call home was brutal because at that time, you guys are so spoiled now, (laughs) at that time to call India in 89 was $3.50 for the first minute and $2.96, don't ask me why, for every subsequent minute to call. So a 10-minute call was very expensive. And so I was very close to my sister. Still, I'm close to my sister. You can't call home. So... You know, I would basically then I found a way to uh, I found an old, sharp, big boombox type thing. I don't know if you, don't, you guys even know what that is. It's a big <laughs> thing that you see in some music videos now. And I found tapes. And so what I would do is I would make an audio tape of my experience. Mm. And so I would just t- say, make a tape saying, hey, I played squash today or I met this friend or I, I, I did this experiment. And I would make two sides of a tape. It would take me about three weeks or so. And then I would mail the tape home, actually, that's so as a way of staying in touch. You know, uh, in fact, that's how I met my wife. But that's a different story. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Uh, wow. But anyway, so the, these are all, you know, things that, you know, it, it's just the way it is. All of us have such stories. All immigrants have stories like that. You know, fortunately, the, the I come from an English-speaking country, so the language wasn't a barrier. So I can imagine, if I didn't speak the language, uh, that would be even more challenging, right? Fortunately right. for me, people would say, oh, but you speak English so well. And I said, well, I dream in English. You know, this, yeah. is, <laughs> this is the colonial <laughs> legacy of the British empire being in India, but uh, anyways, so. Wow, I especially really love that story
2: about the uh, audio diaries. Um, I'm curious, do you still have access to them or are they sort
0: of lost? I don't, but the story I will tell you is uh, it has a a, a big meaning to me in my life because what happened was um, I'm married to a wonderful, wonderful person. And uh, the way I met her was that she was my sister's friend in college. And my sister started college the same year that I left. And when she started college in her first year, she was friends with with Larita, who's my wife now. And my sister would listen to the tapes because I would make it for her because I was Mm -hmm. very close to her. And I guess Larita would listen to me speak on the tapes. (laughs) She got to know me. I guess she thought I was a decent guy to make the tapes for my sister or something. And so when I visited India in the summer a year after, I met her, and she already kind of knew me, but the way she knew me right. was through these tapes that I right. made wow. for my sister. So it's amazing.: Yeah, so that's, that's how we met, story. actually.:
1: That's awesome. Wow. Okay. So moving towards your these stories are awesome, by the way. But moving more into your experience as a PhD at, at, student at Brown, and I uh, see so you did your postdoc at MIT. What was those? What were those experiences like? And what was kind of going through your mind as you were progressing, um, and after you finished your PhD?
0: Yeah. The PhD experience was actually I never thought of myself as a scientist. I never thought I was good enough, honestly, to be a scientist. I always mm-hmm. I was always I always did well in school but I did well in school because I would get like 93 in all the subjects I studied. I wouldn't, I wasn't the guy who would ace math and then just be, you know, I would, I would do well in all the things, English and sociology and everything that I did, I did. Okay. I did, it was like 93. So I never thought of myself as this, you know, brilliant math person or brilliant biologist or something like this. I was just good at many things. Um, and so PhD for me, one of the reasons I chose to do it was I said, you know, if I did my PhD, it's a way to set this to rest. I would become the expert in something, you know? And my way of battling, being good at many things, but not being the top of something, you know? But it turned out that it was still, it's still true. But, but, but so that was part of my thinking, as naive as it was to, to embark on the PhD journey. And then once I started the journey, I f- discovered that it was an incredible leveler in the sense that I could design an experiment to find something that nobody in the world knew. And I could do this in my lab and this bench right here in Providence, Rhode Island. And to me, that was just a mind blowing thing because growing up in India uh, at that time, you know, this tells you how old I am, Netscape was just coming online. You didn't just Google stuff. <laughs> So the way to find things out was you asked somebody, right? You asked an uncle, a friend, a friend's brother. This is how you found stuff out, and and I just it was just mind-boggling to me that the question I had my task was to grow some brain cells in a gel in three dimensions. That was my task in my PhD. Okay. Um, it turns out it turned out to be very hard to do, but but we succeeded. But that's a different story. But the simple things about what kind of gels, what porosity, what does the gel need to have charge? Does the network need to be a certain way? What makes a neuron interact with its, na- with its surrounding such that it feels comfortable enough to send a process out? These are all, you know, analytically, questions you would need to know to design this thing. And I would ask these questions, okay, if this is to be true, that a, a group of neurons need to grow in a gel then the, we need to know these things, and so I would ask these questions, and people would be like, "We don't know. We don't know. Read this paper," but the paper doesn't know. It doesn't speak to that. So I came to realize that I just needed to design a set of experiments to answer these questions, so that I could make this gel that would help regrow nerves after injury, which which was the motivation. To me, it was just intellectually unbelievable that me, who never thought of myself as a scientist or even good enough to do a PhD could just do this and write a paper and tell the world this is how it is. These are the rules (laughs) that a nerve cell needs to grow in a gel for whatever that's worth. And it was just an incredible revelation and a part of me that allowed myself to go off on a journey that stood out was the first time happened to me in grad school. I often think that we limit, we have a certain sense of who we are, you Rivka, you and and many times that's a good thing and it's based on sound judgment but many times it could also be a limitation of what you allow yourself to do. You know, Mm -hmm. our, our identity and who we think we are also limits sometimes what we allow ourselves to do and I remember reading when I was a kid this you know, growing up in doctor's offices when you went there, there there's always Reader's Digest. I don't know if you guys had that here or not, but there's always this magazine called Reader's Digest and it'd be ubiquitous. I don't know, maybe they gave it away for free or something. It was everywhere. (laughs) I remember flipping through this Reader's Digest and there's this one article I read. I must have been like 14 or 12 or something. I can't forget it. it said something like, when you have butterflies in your stomach, whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're giving a big speech or whatever it is, It is a sign that you've reached the limit of what you think you can do. And then you have a choice. You either do it and the butterflies go away or get less. If you do it often enough, they go away. And then the butterfly line is at a new point. (laughs) Right? And it's just an internal sign when you have butterflies in your stomach or you feel nervous about something that you've reached that limit of what you think you can do and what you can't do and for me grad school was like that it was it was a, a broad butterfly line where i crossed this thing about the agency to figure things out that i didn't know and to this day it served me well people say doctor of philosophy for phd and i often think what the heck does philosophy have to do with that it has nothing to do with growing <laughs> neural cells in a gel right yeah. but i think where it's going is no matter what your thesis or what you feel a deep dive into something whether it's phd or some other deep experience gives you this ability to tell yourself that you can figure it out that you can figure it out if you just put time and some mind to it and that in my administrative life or leadership life has been very very powerful for me uh, to feel like i can figure it out to this day you know i'm dean i'll tell you candidly i was never dean before Right. Mm -hmm. And you become dean and people have these expectations of you as a leader, as you got to know all this stuff. What I know is that I can figure it out. (laughs) That's what I know. It's a it's a meta knowing. Obviously, I don't know how electrical engineering works or civil engineering works because I was a biomedical engineer. But I know I can figure it out because I care. And if I, you know, so that's that's what my graduate work gave me is the confidence that whatever it is i can figure it out
2: you know i really like that butterfly analogy i think it's a pretty unique take and something that makes me think a lot
1: yeah next time i'm nervous i'm just going to imagine like a line of butterflies in front of me like that's that's not so scary (laughs) and then you just
0: play with them rivka and then before you know it you'll be on the other side exactly (laughs) (laughs)
2: what was the next line of butterflies i suppose the thing that you were striving for to continue your research as a professor I know a lot of undergrads and especially I didn't realize this until um, recently that you, in fact, have a lot of options um, at the end of your Ph.D. Um, Was that the next thing that you were striving for? You've held a number of professorships before you came to Duke. Um, Was that it?
0: Yeah, it was in a sense that I actually, you know, now that you talk about it, I always like to operate at the edge of what I like to do, what I know, what I think I know how to do and what I don't know how to do. It may be stupid, but I like to be there. And so what happened after I finished and uh, I did my postdoctoral work, I had two paths. I had a job offer of sorts with a Swiss multinational company in Austin, Texas that had me going to Switzerland back and forth and it wow. would pay me, I think the salary in those days, this is again, this is like 94, 95. Um, mm-hmm. salary was like 100 or 110K something. Or I could be a tenure track faculty member at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio, where I had never been to Ohio before. Um, and I had heard stories about Cleveland and the river burning and things like this, <laughs> in Cleveland um, for like 60K uh, as a professor, like half almost the salary. Right. right. And I remember talking to my wife, I had just been married um, a year or so. And I was like, I think I want to take this Cleveland job. And she says, wait, <laughs> it pays you less. It's in Cleveland, which is cold and snowy and, and, and as opposed to Austin, Texas, which is warm and you know, we prefer the warm climate. Um, and I said, I think I know how to do the Austin job. You know, I think I'd be decent at it, I think I know. But the Cleveland thing, I don't know if I can be my own scientist if I have my own group. Because so far the ideas were my advisor gave them to me or my postdoctoral mentor had some things i don't know if on my own i would have any new ideas or not and i remember telling her they have this thing called tenure and in six years they tell you if you have the job or not and in six years if, we, if i'm not good we'll go do something else <laughs> you know, this is so crazy this is truly this is what i remember talking to her about And I took the job at Case, you know, and that's how I went into academics because I didn't know if I could be an independent scientist on my own and I wanted to find out, you know.
1: Yeah, wow. So transitioning past your, once you um, entered academia as a faculty member, I see that you uh, moved to Georgia Tech at some point. You were appointed the chair of the BME department there. What was that like transitioning from being a pure researcher teacher into a more administrative position? And how did you balance those two different roles?
0: Yeah, so there's a story there as well. I, um, all my life I told you I was in different clubs and things, and somehow I ended up being president of most of them. And it's funny <laughs> because people, you know, even now, people tell me, Ravi, you're gonna be the president of the university someday. And I keep saying, why would you say that? But, so that, that, that's some history, okay? Um, and then in the department, what happened was, I was very happy, we had, we had a very large lab, I was very active in research, but I had a mentor. Uh, we had some strategic planning exercise that we went through and, um, and this mentor became the vice president for research for Georgia Tech, where I was, and he said, Ravi, you have some leadership qualities and you have a good way of dealing with people and people seem to listen to you. You should really try your hand at leadership positions. And um, I said, but I just, I was like, I became a full professor when I was like 38. I was really young. so Because I was, you know, I didn't do anything else. I just went straight through. So I was a full professor at 38 and I was at that time, maybe 40 or maybe just early 40s. And I said, you know, he said, come be an associate vice president for research at Georgia Tech, which is a big, giant, it's an $800 million enterprise. I was like, wow. are you sure you're talking to me? You know <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just got promoted to full. He says, no, trust me, you you helped create, you have vision, you, you came up with the strategic plan, you helped us with it, come help us implement it. And so before I knew it, before I became department chair, I had this really high flying title of associate vice president for research for the entire university, right? Wow. Including all the colleges and everything. And I did okay at that job because I think, you know, I, I was used to running meetings. I, I, was, I ran many clubs. I, I knew how to get stuff done, I guess. And so I, I became department chair and uh, primarily because I loved education and thinking about our students and what makes for a great engineer or a great successful student. And in the research track, I could have become, you know, gone on on the research side, supporting research, but I really wanted to think about educational programs because I I care deeply about it. And so the department Mm -hmm. chair offered me a chance to do that. So I came back actually to become department chair. And we did a set of things that to this day, I'm very proud of uh, at Georgia Tech, where we reimagined the curriculum, we made some bets, Uh, the department actually went on to become from number four to number one under my watch. Unfortunately, wow. displaced Duke from two to three, when I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in BAB, but anyway, so, and then I came here, but um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was an amazing experience. The other part about being department chair is it's largely about people and, you know, any leadership job ultimately is about people and, and how you interact with them, whether you're authentic, whether they trust you. Um, so there are different styles of leadership uh, I feel like, you know, essentially we're in a noble enterprise of research and education, and I try to be honest, I try not to lie, I try to be open with people, uh, and I've had good luck with uh, being able to move move things uh, in the different roles I've had um, using that strategy.
1: Interesting, yeah, wow, that's, that's great to hear <laughs> that, that honesty for, from you as well. Um, being like when as you moved into these more administrative roles did you have to take kind of a step back in your own personal research and was that was that tough for you
0: it is tough for me even now i struggle with it uh, because my primary identity of myself as I t- speaking of identities earlier isn't that of an administrator right okay. i mean i think of myself as being curious about the world and trying to figure out how it works many things and, and research especially our brain tumor work is very impactful i think we hope to be in patients next year we have some ideas about how to deal with oh. a tumor that's dispersed. It's a quite, it's a challenging problem. We've published some cool papers on it. They've got some press. Yesterday, this morning, I have an email from somebody in Europe saying, hey, when is your device available? I have brain, brain cancer and I'd like to use your device. And it's sobering to get these emails from patients and their mothers or sisters or, or, or others from family. Um, so that part of me, I care deeply about. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I can see the impact of dreaming up something like EGR 101, which was Mm -hmm. something that didn't exist. Nobody was talking about it. I wanted to do something like that. um, And now it exists. And it's become sort of the identity of Pratt in certain ways uh, about what Pratt is about. When you ask applicants to Pratt, they talk about EGR 101 as much as they talk about Duke Engage or other things, right? So. Uh, so to me, the power of doing things like that, of having an impact, and impacting a large number of people is also you know, meaningful. And so it is a balance, but I'm losing the balance. <laughs> as, as, as my administrative duties increase, uh, I don't know how long I'll be able to continue my research, but it's unusual for deans to be research active. So mm-hmm. just right. as an FYI, it's unusual for department chairs at large public universities to be research active, but we've managed to do that, and I'll keep doing it until I can't. <laughs> uh, there's a separate story about Navy SEALs, but I won't tell you. I don't. We probably don't have time. Uh, that that goes into uh, that rationale.
1: Hopefully, we can have you on for a second podcast in the future, <laughs> and we can
0: dive uh,
2: in there. For sure, um, it's interesting how certain people saw leadership qualities in you that sort of led to you taking on these. Uh, leadership positions, and it's clear that Duke saw those same qualities in you as well. What were your first impressions of Duke? It's sort of like a hop on over from Atlanta to uh, <laughs> to Durham, but you know, what were your first impressions?
0: Yeah, no, thank you for asking. Um, I love Duke. I've come to love Duke a lot, actually. But my first impressions were obviously I respected it a lot. Um, my first impressions of Duke was that it really has amazing students and faculty and they all seemed relatively happy. You know, I I spent time at MIT and to a lesser degree at Georgia Tech and other places, but I always had this feeling that excellence needed carrots and sticks, right? You needed sticks to some degree, whatever the nature of sticks to motivate things. Sure. But at Duke, I didn't see, at MIT, there is a stick. The stick is, peer pressure so you and I are neighbors and you're getting awards you're writing a paper in nature and science and I'm thinking to myself hey you know I need to I need to <laughs> you know there's a there's an incredible peer pressure stick at MIT right and it's just everywhere uh, because that's you're expected to you know anyway so I didn't see such sticks at Duke and yet people were very positive productive, oh. and people seemed happy we don't typically lose a lot of faculty to other universities. They like to stay. Our students from the first week say they don't want to leave. You know, <laughs> but that was an experience with my son too. So, so I, was, I, was, I was just exposed to this idea that you could have a place where you didn't have to trade off excellence and motivation to sticks and pressure you know, or fear, sure. things like this. So to me, Duke is amazing that way.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Moving towards, I guess, your role, we see you on campus walking around every once in a while. You've uh, visited some of our classes and and given uh, speeches, and we've heard your talks. What does your day-to-day on campus, your role look like? I guess in a normal year, we see you on campus. This year, not so much. Yeah,
0: mostly it has to do with meetings of different kinds, unfortunately. Um, It is either meeting with groups of uh, my leadership team or faculty or students, and most of the times I'm, I'm trying to uh, do two things at a broad level. One is to w- what you might call make the trains run on time, right? So sure. a set of things need to happen for all the things at Duke to work, for the research to work, for education to work, graduate programs to work, staff, uh, budgets, salaries. There's the mechanics of operating a place. So that's my job I mean, as the Dean. The school. It's my job to make sure the school operates and operates mm-hmm. well. The second part of my job, which I also get a lot of energy. In fact, I get energy from this, so I can spend it here. <laughs> is the idea of trying to imagine an as- aspirational state in all of those spaces? You know, mm-hmm. what does it what does it mean to have an amazing undergraduate experience as studying engineering? What does that actually mean? What are the elements of that? Is it how courses are? Is it about what courses? Is it about the balance between coursework and residential life and advising? So what is that, right? And I like those questions. And so I pose those questions and I iterate the ideas with the team and then think of ways of implementing this. And so this is an important part of my job as Dean to imagine where the world is going. For example, in biomedical engineering, what is the role of AI in biomedical engineering, right? If AI is an amazing tool to be used and it's changing business and changing different fields and changing how I read my news or the friends that I meet and all of this, how is it gonna change the field of biomedical engineering and health? And if it is gonna change health, do I have people in biomedical engineering who are AI people? And it Mm -hmm. turns out until two years ago, we didn't so and now we do so these so these kinds of things i like to think about and the same holds in mechanical engineering or elsewhere um so so the two kinds of activities are operations and we have a fantastic leadership team that helps me with that and then trying to figure out who do we want to be and how do we how do we get there
2: yeah and that's a lot of responsibility on top of the fact that you're a pi um, of a bme research lab so kind of transitioning to your research.
1: If you were, for example, on morning NPR radio and they ask you to describe the purpose or impact of your research to the general public in you know, a minute or so, how, what would you say and how would you describe that?
0: Yeah, the problem that's consumed, we've done many things in the past, but the problem that occupies my mind the most today is, how do you deal with a situation when the cancer in the brain has spread, mm-hmm. right? How do you deal with it? We're terrible when the cancer spreads. When it's contained in a certain space, I can take it out. I can aim radiation at it. I can put a drug in there. But when a cancer is spread, especially in an organ like the brain, so in an organ like the breast, I can sacrifice the organ as a whole and say, you know what, I'll do reconstructive surgery and things like this, but I can sacrifice the organ and I don't have that luxury in the brain. In fact, I don't have the luxury in the brain to take out a little bit extra just to make sure I got all the cancer because that's the difference between speech or no speech, walking or not walking. So we've done a set of things to address this that I'm excited about. One is if the tumor is invasive and wants to invade, rather than trying to stop it from invading as most people are, can I take advantage of the fact that it wants to move and construct a path for it that is preferred for it to move? And that is the basis of one of our projects It's called the tumor monorail. So we have built a monorail for the cancer cells to migrate and give a preferred path for it to grow. We have another paper we published last year, which is the monorail still involves physically placing it someplace, but the tumor has dispersed. How many parts of the brain can I place the monorail to entice it to come out if it's already spread? So then we are thinking, well, if we can somehow come up with a field that somehow can move cancer cells, then I can shape electric fields or magnetic fields to lens them, just as you have optics and you have a lens to make rays of sun concentrate, can I, Mm -hmm. A, would tumor cells respond to electric fields? And B, can I then shape the fields so I I can take a dispersed tumor and coalesce it to a certain point? And so that's a paper we just published in a gel, by the way. We showed last year that (laughs) a dispersed tumor cell, we could move it entirely using a field. A very talented student and uh, research scientist in my lab, Jonathan Lyon, did this work. And now we're excited to take it this year to to design it in an animal model, having a tumor that spread, can we make it move to an operable location from an inoperable location? Or something that spread, can we make it collapse into one so that tumor can be taken out as a whole? So it's a tough problem. I'm not sure we'll be able to solve it, but I know that brain cancer, the outcomes have not changed since 1968 before the war on cancer, Mm -hmm. before Nixon, before NCI, in this one particular area, we have not made progress. And hence, engineers like me are fiddling around, (laughs) and not just cancer scientists, uh, to try to come up with increasing the ways in which we can manage that situation, if you will.
2: Wow, that's so fascinating. I could probably sit here all day and ask you questions about your research as someone who's interested in getting a PhD in the area of brain cancer research. But I wanted to start off my next question by reading something you said a few years back around the same time you came to Duke. You said, quote, If you want to be a doctor, you know what courses you need to take, but what do you need to do to become the person you want to become? Maybe it will just happen, but this is too important to be left to chance. Whether that comes from spirituality, music, reading, there are many ways to get there, but we need to be intentional about doing the things that nourish our soul. So what is it that nourishes your soul? Among all the commitments you have as dean and as a scientist, what do you do for fun and how do those things affect you and define who you are?
0: Yeah, no, I I think my feeling is that having, again, I I think of myself as an observer of the world and of of things, right? Um, And my observation is that we don't have a clear sense of what success is as individuals or as society. The reason is that we just assume that if we get a good job or if our salary is a certain amount, or if we're married or have a family, or if we have a certain kind of car or house, right? We mark our success by all these factors. And maybe they create the circumstances to allow something else to happen for me to feel a certain sense of peace or happiness within. And maybe there are necessary ingredients, all these things family and some material comfort and all these things, but they don't guarantee that that happens. They may create the circumstances for it. They don't guarantee it. So then the question is, what is it, right? What is it that makes us grounded such that when we are 90 years old, looking at the ceiling, we sigh and feel comfortable with who we are. And I think it's important for each of us to consider that, that to consider Uh, Is that going to be incidental to the pursuit of all these other things or is that going to factor in as a goal in the pursuit of these other things or or, or what things I pursue? And I think each of us has to answer that question for ourselves. And for me, I feel, and this happened to me about 10 years ago, I'll tell you that story later, but I feel like all the things I want in life, I already have and it's a profound realization for me, more impactful than anything I can describe. The minute I realize that all the things I have in life I already have, it gives me incredible freedom not to be a prisoner of wanting the next thing, you know? And anything that happens to me in life after is a bonus, it's a plus, it's a gift, and I'm grateful for it. because if you think about the world, there's so much randomness in it, right? I was born in a country that has 1.2, 1.4 billion people. I was born where I was born. I had no control of when I was born, where I was born, who my parents were, right? It's just I happened to be. And we can think, of, I say, oh, Ravi, you know, you're successful, you're the dean of an amazing place. There are many bright people. There are many wonderful people. There are many scholars who don't have the life I have by chance, right? So what I'm saying is you enter a world with a certain humility and time is very precious. Who knows what happens after, right? And I just feel like we should spend some time thinking about what is it that we we call success? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I know the answer, but I know that the answer lies in me paying attention to what truly gives me peace and what is supposed to give me peace, you know, and and not taking for, it's like a formula, right? So if there's a formula in your engineers, you can use a formula It's very useful to use in a formula, but truly un- to understand why something is in the numerator or why something is in the denominator is different from just applying the formula. It's more meaningful when you apply the formula, when you understand what the units are, why do you have this divided by this you know there's a deeper level of understanding when you get to the same answer maybe but to me it's important that given that we have finite time in the world that we pay closer attention to what it is that we want to optimize for you know, in right. our time
1: that's a really really beautiful outlook and i I kind of want to ask how you got to the point where you were able to, I guess, come to peace with that and see that, like, have that outlook. I know it's really easy for um, undergrads in general and engineers and PhD students to always be looking towards the next thing and really striving. And in some ways, that's that's a good thing, right? That makes people ambitious. Um, but how do you how do you kind of balance that and reach? And how did you come to that conclusion?
0: I'm not sure I know the answer. I For me, it was reading a lot. So I, I read a lot and I've always read a lot. And perhaps it's the nature of reading. I'm a big fan of, um, I read you know, Khalil Gibran and Herman Hess. And you probably don't know all these people. But but I think reading helps you uh, gain perspective. And also it is this idea that, that I, I didn't have a strong, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that had dogma with it, right? Whether it's faith or professions or so it was an open, so it it was left for me to figure out and reading for me uh, helped me think about things, uh, Mm -hmm. speak to dead people, if you will. Right. And gain from their wisdom Um, and also to pay attention to the fickleness of, so for me, for example, when I first started teaching, I had a, some of my research was mentioned in the Economist. Okay, and the Economist is like, oh my God, it's the Economist, right? So right. I had people from Hong Kong <laughs> right. write to me saying, Ravi, your work is in the Economist. I can't believe it because I don't know if you know about the magazine Economist. It's like the Harvard of magazines, right? So, sure. um, but I realized that yeah. all of these things, like awards and recognition, are fickle. They really are. You know, people will say amazing things about you and all these things. Everything is. Is, is, is in my mind fickle. What is true is what you, be, if you believe you've done something meaningful or not, that's what matters. When I look into my kids' eyes, am I, am I somebody that they respect for who I am, not because of the story of who I am, right? And, right? and And so this idea of being internally grounded is probably the only way to go in my mind because you can never win the game of pleasing the world or chasing something, you can never win that game. I just don't believe you can. Because there's always, if you're wealthy, you can be more wealthy, right? I mean, you can always be more wealthy. You're (laughs) smart. There's always somebody smarter than you. Right. There, There is no end to those things, right? So to me, the logical thing is to try to pay attention to what gives you meaning and purpose and trying to magnify that part of your life.
2: I really like that take on personal growth and sort of this might be a this is sort of a really hefty question but speaking on the experiences that have defined your personal growth um what would you say is you know one of the biggest failures of your career or a time when you failed and what did you learn from it Sorry to drop a huge I think about this I mean
0: so it's hard to know what I've not done, right? So the one part of me that asks the question is, you know, is, if, if what I said is true, if what I said is true in the sense of we have finite time and we should pay more intentional effort to personal growth and realization of, you know, of meaning and purpose, is this the career that I've chosen? the most efficient way to do that upon reflection, right? Should I, should I be a man of the clock, right? And be a priest or should I do social work and work for a nonprofit and extend my energies of leadership or capabilities in that sector, right? So there is always doubt about those kinds of things. And I don't know the answer to that, right? because I stumbled upon being where I am because I did a series of things. But if I look back and I said, what would you do? If you were starting over, would you do this exact thing or would you do something else? And so it's not really a failure, but I just cannot help but observe that I've stumbled upon this path. And in this path, I try to find meaning and purpose and do the best I can to make a positive impact on the world through research or through the education programs or through supporting others. So I guess that's the thing, I guess I will never know if somebody was counseling me, uh, they would say, Avi, stop being this Dean business, (laughs) go do this other thing, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Um, So that's the only thought that occurs to me. I don't have any, regrets necessarily in the sense that I feel like I've always tried to do the best I can with the information I had, and uh, I can't beat myself for that, you know, that, that's all we can do. But I will tell you one thing, and I will t- I've shared this with some of our students about, you know, if the uncertainty is a tough thing, right? You don't know. You don't know where you're going to be next year, the year after, five years from now, 10 years from now. And one way to think about the world maybe, and I hope this is useful for you is, yes, if you want certainty to know, will you be successful professionally? What will you be doing? Will you do your PhD or not? Or will you go to med school? Will you have a job in corporate America or in academia? So there are all these questions that are still uncertain you don't know. Who will your significant other be if there is such thing? You know, you don't know many things, right? But what what you can have certainty about is one level after. If you say, I will always try to be a good person. I will always try to be intellectually curious. I'll always try to learn things and be kind to people. And you can have a frame like that for yourself that you can apply to the world. And your constant can come from that. When that frame, if you will, interacts with the world, because you didn't know we were going to have this conversation or what I was going to say, right? And same thing happens to you. You go to a talk you run into somebody, you have coffee with somebody and they bring somebody else and you meet them, right? You don't know what, this randomness in the world. But when you have a frame like the one I described or something like that, not that frame necessarily perhaps, you make your own frame, about what you value. And you let it interact with the world, good things will happen no matter. No matter where the probability function collapses as they say, you know, so (laughs) mine collapsed to be an engineer, to be a professor, to be in leadership positions, that's where it collapsed. But there were many other possibilities that could have happened that randomly didn't happen. But the frame I hope I bring to any possibility is the same frame of trying to do the best I can, being compassionate, being respectful of people, trying to move the needle in what I think is a positive direction to make the world a little bit better. That frame is a constant that I can live with that gives me some peace. Does that help? So what I'm saying is in an uncertain world when you're young and you crave, and you're trying to figure out how to deal with the uncertainty, you can have certainty that comes from you having a frame for yourself about who you are and how you want to be. And you have to let it be that there is randomness on how that frame will interact with the world and time. And it'll collapse in some way, (laughs) but it'll still be good, whatever it is. That's wow. awesome.
1: we were going to actually ask uh, for if you had any advice, but like just this whole podcast you've just been spilling out advice, so i don't even we don't even need to ask the question, <laughs> but there are a few questions that we like to ask everybody once we finish the podcast. You kind of inspired one of them just now, but I was wondering what the last book you read was
0: uh, last book I finished was in the Expanse series, the eighth book of the Expanse series i don't know if you know about the expanse it's a sci-fi uh, uh, series, and I'm currently reading a book um. On called The Three-Party Problem, which is also in that genre. Uh, And I'm also reading Eckhart Tolle's book uh, called uh, The Power of Now. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, Because there's a whole rumination of, when I say I, what do you mean? And Mm -hmm. there is modern psychology, the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha is supposed to have given a lecture on when I say I, what does it mean? If I cut my finger off, am I still me? If I So anyway, so I don't want to know. that's what I'm (laughs) reading.
2: No, that's great. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to have like a whole like book list compiled from these. And then another final fun question, you know, are you a coffee or tea drinker? And if so, or if not, what is like your go-to?
0: Definitely coffee. Although I'm in a family of tea drinkers, but I'm definitely a coffee person. I love my Nespresso machine. It's awesome.
1: (laughs) Wow. Thank you so much. Dean you know, Belmondo, this was amazing. Um we really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. You guys have a great great semester.
2: Wow, that was a really fun conversation. Dr. Kanda has such an exciting life.
1: Yeah, it was it was crazy to hear some of the stories of when he was first coming from India to the US and all the crazy challenges he had to deal with.
2: What an incredible journey, going from sort of not knowing where Rhode Island was to being the dean of one of the largest universities in terms of engineering in the United States. I mean, that's, that's really incredible.
1: Yeah, no, it was huge. It was also really cool to hear his kind of philosophy and outtake on life in general. Um, I was kind of inspired by the fact that even as someone so busy as him, Uh, And someone who works in such a technical field can kind of reflect and have these big, like, philosophies that he looks on life with.
2: Yeah, I I thought the exact same thing. I mean, he's very intentional about everything that he does. Not just his research, but his hobbies and his activities and his relationship with his family. So I think that gives him a really humble demeanor.
1: Agreed. It was an absolute pleasure talking with Dr. Vellum If you want to hear more from After Office Hours, you can check out our channel on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts at After Office Hours. And we already have several great episodes out. If you want to hear more, we have new episodes coming out every Tuesday. You can send us a message on our Instagram at after double underscore office hours to reach out to us. We would love to hear your feedback and we'll see you next time.
2: Yep. See you next time.